0: On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue.
1: Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Simon Baron-Cohn, a professor of psychology and psychiatry and director of the Autism Research Center at Cambridge University, who's authored more than 600 scientific articles and four books, including his most recent, The Pattern Seekers, How Autism Drives Human Invention. I'm grateful to speak with him about the book, including the historic role that autistic people have played in the human story of creativity and progress. Simon, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book.
2: Thank you, Sean, for inviting me to talk to you today. I'm looking forward to our conversation.
1: Peter Thiel, the Silicon Valley investor and public intellectual, has often made the case that a disproportionate number of the world's greatest innovators are autistic. His hypothesis is that the causal factor is that autistic people are less likely to respond to social pressures to conform. You argue, however, that while his observation may be right, His explanation is wrong. You attribute it to what you call the, quote, systemizing mechanism, which is particularly strong among autistic people. Let me ask you a two-part question. First, what is the systematizing mechanism? And second, what is its origins?
2: Yeah, I mean, this connection between autism and invention is, I think, a really intriguing one because on the face of it, why would you expect any connection between, on the one hand, a disability and on the other hand, some people would argue the defining quality of the human mind, the fact that we can invent, not just invent once, but we seem to be able to invent generatively. We can we do it unstoppably. And I think probably peter is is correct that maybe autistic people are less distracted by social conventions. You know, non-autistic people spend a lot of time worrying about what other people are thinking and how they're feeling and maybe whether they're kind of fitting in the group. And that can mean that you end up thinking in a way that's like groupthink, you know, that you follow the herd. And we know that ideas follow fashions. Yes. Autistic people may be less distracted by that and maybe want to figure things out from first principles, you know, figure out what they believe and what what they know, and even ask very basic questions of like, how do we know what we know? What's the evidence? And then you mentioned that in my book, The Pattern Seekers, my argument is a bit different, which is that in the human brain, there's a mechanism called the systemizing mechanism that enables us to understand how things work. So it enables us to kind of look for systems in the world. Systems are anything that follow rules, anything that that has regularities or patterns, but uh, not just any kind of patterns because many animals can recognize patterns. What humans I argue uniquely can do is they can spot if and then patterns. Mm. If I take something and I do something to it, then I can see what happens. So it's almost the way we experiment with the world. We kind of manipulate things in the world and we observe what happens. And in autism, autistic people, the evidence suggests that this mechanism is just tuned up super high, that they're looking for these kinds of, patterns, this if and then logic, but they're doing it, you know, much more than the average person. And that, you know, this, this logic, if I take something, and I do something to it, then what happens? I argue that that is the basis of invention. Because on the one hand, you can spot patterns that you've seen before. But on the other hand, you can start to change one or several of those variables. So an example that I explore in the book is the first or the earliest musical instrument. It's about 40,000 years old, and it shows up in the archaeological record, and it was a flute made from a hollow bone from a bird, and it had some holes in it. And the idea, if we try to imagine one of our ancestors inventing the first flute, the idea might have been that if I blow down the hollow bone and I cover one hole, then I make a particular note, if and then. But if I blow down the hollow bone and cover two holes, then I make a different note. And it's the, I think this is a really nice, simple example of what I mean by systemizing, where even a young human child experimenting in this way to try and understand how it works, but autistic people, there's a lot of evidence, seem to be very drawn to these kind of pattern recognition activities, seem to be very quick at it, and maybe through experimenting in this way, may be more likely to innovate or invent.
1: That's a brilliant first answer, Simon, and we'll pursue some of those different lines of analysis uh, throughout the conversation. But I want to take up the point that you make about the distinction between humans and animals. If humans can rely on varying degrees of systemizing of the systemizing mechanism, what does it mean to say that animals are generally limited to what you call, quote, associative learning? What's the distinction there?
2: So, associative learning has been studied in many species. And that's simply where you notice a relationship between two things, A and B. You know, so if we think about, let's say a monkey that picks up a rock and smashes it on a nut so that it can get the juicy insides, you know, it's associating the action of smashing with getting the reward. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to, and that is an example of tool use, by the way, they're using the rock as a tool. So many species are using tools. Uh, and it's an example where you would need to associate the action with the outcome. But it doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to start changing or experimenting with the technique or with the tool that they're using to invent new tools. And what's very interesting about humans from about 70,000 years ago is that the way that we've created the tools just increases exponentially. So for millions of years, Again, in the archaeological record, simple stone tools didn't change very much in their design. Um, so if we look at our hominid ancestors, they were using, you know rocks as hammers or blades to cut and scrape. But the design of these tools, there were small changes, but for millions of years, nothing, you know nothing re- revolutionary. Whereas from about 70 to 100,000 years ago. You know, I mentioned the first musical instrument, but we also see the first bow and arrow, which is a complex tool. Uh, We see the first jewellery, you know, and not long after we see the first sculptures and cave paintings. And, you know, the, the list continues that humans seem to have this generative side to invention. And we just don't see that amongst other species.
1: I want to shift the conversation to autism itself, particularly for those listeners who may not have a lot of exposure to it. What is autism? What causes it? And how does it work? Talk talk about how it manifests across a spectrum.
2: So autism is a developmental disability, and it involves different brain development that starts prenatally. That's what the research is showing even if the person doesn't get their diagnosis till uh, long after that the diagnosis is made on the basis of social difficulties and communication difficulties but also that the person is spending much longer on very narrow interests they become it's sometimes called obsessed with particular topics I don't think this is a negative thing I think it's a feature that's quite positive because it means that they like to go into great depth into particular subjects and on the the other positives of autism is that they have fantastic attention to detail they're spotting things that maybe other people miss maybe because they're going into more depth or maybe because and some people have argued this their attention is just at a more local level it matters to them what the small differences are between things I think this relates to what we were talking about earlier, that if you have attention to detail, you're more likely to understand how a system works. Whether it's mathematics or music, You know, changing one number in an equation will change the outcome of the result of that equation, or changing one note in a, a sequence of notes will change the song. So it's that kind of detail. Autistic people do have other things they struggle with, they find it difficult to if you can generalize to deal with un, unexpected change so they like they like routine and predictability sometimes they feel overwhelmed by their sensory experiences that you know sounds may be too loud or lights may be too bright and then autism is often associated with co-occurring conditions like mm. you know learning disabilities or in 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 north america it's sometimes called intellectual disability, language delay, epilepsy, so medical conditions might go along with it. And you asked about the causes. These days, we recognize autism is partly genetic. It runs in families and scientists are finding a large number of genes that are associated with autism. And we haven't yet found all of them. But also there are non genetic factors that cause autism and our our research is looking at hormones during pregnancy particularly they're called the sex steroid hormones like testosterone and estrogen which change brain development depending on how you know the levels of these hormones the baby is exposed to and also interact with the genetic predisposition so it's a complex picture in terms of the causes but Most importantly, we should think of this as a disability and a difference. You know, that for their disabilities, autistic people are asking very reasonably for support. But for their differences, they're they're asking for respect and acceptance, that not everybody learns the same way. Not everyone processes information the same way. And that difference doesn't mean worse or inferior difference is simply, you know, it's called neurodiversity, you know, that, that all of our brains are wired differently. And we, we need to make space in society for, for people who do think differently.
1: Simon, what explains the rise of autism in our societies? Is it better medical diagnosis or some other factors?
2: It certainly is true that autism is on the increase. So I've been working in this field for 40 years. So if you go back to the 1980s, the statistics were something like four in 10,000. So autism was considered very rare. If we fast forward to the turn of the century, so around the year 2000, I would say that the prevalence of autism was about one in 2000. But today, just to jump up to 2023, it's now one in 36. So that's the latest data from the US and most countries are finding similar rates. So actually autism is now very common. And you're asking, you know, what's driven this massive increase. And I think part of it is is better awareness. Um, Part of it is that in the mid 90s, we expanded the definition of autism to include people who do not have learning disability or intellectual disability, when previously the majority of autistic people also had intellectual disability. So suddenly that opened up the diagnosis to to the whole population. And then obviously with the growth of the internet and social media, people have heard about it, started wondering, does this apply to me or to my child or my husband? And so they've been seeking a diagnosis. And you know i think this is all a good thing but on the other hand many services especially for diagnosis are really stretched it may be the same in canada that there are now long waiting lists to to get a diagnosis
1: i, I just say in parentheses, simon i worked in politics in canada for several years and the most difficult meetings i had in my entire time in government was with meeting stakeholders and parents from the autistic community the Sense of urgency and desperation in terms of diagnosis and and the need for services is something that will stay with me for the rest of my life.
2: Yeah. Well, I, you know, I wish I could say that things were getting better or point to parts of the globe where things are going well. But the reality is that, first of all, this increase in diagnosis or in seeking a diagnosis has just been a steady increase. And that has placed pressure on services you know, clinics haven't got more funding or more staff to see the, the numbers that are seeking a diagnosis. But more worrying is that even if you get a diagnosis, there's often very little out there for families or for autistic people. And so we're seeing very high rates of poor mental health, amongst autistic adults, particularly. So high levels of depression and anxiety, and even worse, uh, suicidality. You know it's now estimated that one in four autistic adults will attempt suicide and you know that's um it's a it's a terrible indict, indictment on on our society that they're feeling so bad you know and so unsupported uh, and maybe that their experience in childhood in the, and in their teens is one of ex- exclusion and feeling stigmatized or discriminated against, that they end up feeling that life isn't worth living. So there is a kind of urgent need, you know, just to have more funding for basic services for this community.
1: I want to come back to your observations about why autistic people tend to have a more highly tuned systemizing mechanism. What explains your argument that they disproportionately tend to be what you call, quote, hyper-systemizers? So we've done
2: a a bunch of studies to try and understand this. And we think it may be for partly genetic reasons. Uh, I say partly because, you know, the causes of autism are complex. But if I just run you through some of those studies, the first one was in a place called Eindhoven which is the Silicon Valley of the Netherlands. You may have heard of it, and some of your listeners may have heard of it. It's a city which has the Eindhoven Institute of Technology, which is a bit like MIT. And it's, and it's also had a factory there, uh, the Phillips factory, that's been attracting people who have good systems thinking, like engineers and IT people for over a hundred years. And What we looked at was whether the rates of autism were higher in this city in Eindhoven, compared to two other Dutch cities that basically weren't hubs for it. And what that's exactly what we found. So what we concluded was that where you have parents who have talents in understanding systems, like engineers, they're more likely to have an autistic child. So, you know, for genetic reasons, or partly genetic reasons. And then we had a second opportunity to look at this, by asking a large population of of people to take a questionnaire called the autism spectrum quotient, the AQ. And this just counts how many autistic traits a person has. The idea is that we all have some, and autistic people just have a lot more of these traits. And when we analyze the data by dividing that population, population into those who work in STEM, science, technology, engineering, or math, and those who do not work in STEM, we found that those who work in STEM have more autistic traits. So it was a second kind of clue that there's a connection between aptitude and understanding systems and autistic traits, the number that you have. But the kind of, maybe the strongest evidence for us came from working with a a company called 23andMe. You may have heard of it, but it's a personal genomics company. You know, you pay $100 and um, they send you a, a kit to be able to send your saliva sample off and they identify what genes you're carrying. We were able to work with the customers of that company To ask them to take a a different questionnaire, the systemizing quotient, which looks at how interested you are in systems of different kinds uh, and look at the genetic basis of that aptitude. And what we found was that the genes associated with systemizing talent overlap significantly with the genes associated with autism. So, So, right in our human genome, if you like, we're finding that genes linked to autism are also linked to talent, which kind of tells us something very important. I think that autism is not just a disorder or a disability. These words are commonly used. Autism is also a difference. And some of those differences are strengths or even talents.
0: Sign up for the Hub's free weekly newsletter and receive our best analysis and insights on the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Each Saturday morning, we will send you a compilation of our most interesting and thought-provoking analysis and commentary, along with original news reporting on the people and events driving the public conversation. You can grab The Hub's complimentary weekly newsletter right now by becoming a free Hub member. Do that at www.thehub.ca. Again, www.thehub.ca. Grab your free email newsletter and membership. Act now.
1: You cite high-profile figures such as Thomas Edison and Albert Einstein as autistic. How do we know that about them?
2: You know, this was a, a book that is popular science. And uh, I think in popular science, you have a little bit more freedom to explore stories, st- stories about people, particularly sort of famous people in history. So Thomas Edison, if you look at the biography or different biographies of Thomas Edison, you know, the person who invented the first electric light bulb, he actually invented unstoppably. He was in, in, inventing he, he had hundreds of patents, but you know, a lot of his behavior might today have been called autistic. You know, he was obsessed with Morse code as a teenager, which is a, a system of patterns. He named his kids dot and Dash, and you know, his wife moved his mattress into his workshop so that he could continue to invent and experiment day and night. So, you know, and he didn't really like spend much time socializing either. So, you know, these are kind of anecdotes and anecdotes are not really scientific evidence, but by exploring the profiles of individuals who have made remarkable contributions as inventors, we often see traits, if you like, that might add up to an autism diagnosis but i would say that you know this kind of historical approach to diagnosing people who are no longer alive i mean it carries all kinds of risks the first is that they're not here to speak up for themselves we don't know if they would have been seeking a diagnosis if they were struggling for example with their mental health there may be all kinds of gaps in the biographical evidence so you know when we do science We tend to focus on people who are alive today and conduct the the kinds of big studies that I described earlier.
1: One person who is alive today is Elon Musk, who's been open about his autism. What do you think transparency on the part of him and, and other high profile figures can do to increase awareness and socialization of the idea at the center of the book, which is That autistic people have strengths and talents that we shouldn't underestimate.
2: So, I mean, Elon Musk, in some ways, you know, fits the profile of what I'm talking about in my book, The Pattern Seekers, because uh, he's an engineer. He's constantly inventing. You know, he often is ignoring what's the prevailing fashion or the conventions of the day to go for something really novel and innovative. He came out publicly saying that he was autistic. And I think, you know, this may have been very positive in terms of helping to destigmatize autism, and for him to serve as a kind of role model of what autistic people could achieve under the right conditions. Because many autistic people, we spoke earlier are underachieving because of maybe their experience of, of being bullied at school and that sense of exclusion. You know, some people might say, does Elon Musk really need a diagnosis? Because maybe we should be restricting a diagnosis of autism to people who are struggling in some way. Yes. No, Elon Musk has obviously done very well. And that's great. But for me, I would say that a diagnosis should also be your passport to getting services, to getting support and intervention if you need it. And it's not clear from what Musk has said, that, you know, he that he, he needs any extra support. So I'd say that, you know, his, 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 his statement, sort of identifying himself as autistic, on the one hand, is great in terms of raising awareness, but maybe we need to sort of be cautious about, you know, if we overextend the diagnosis. Is that really kind of fair on the people who are desperately seeking support?
1: That's a fascinating observation. I just want to make sure I understand it, Simon. And I understand that impulse, uh, you know, to be transparent, I care very deeply about issues of, of disability. Probably there's nothing from a kind of normative point of view that animates my involvement in politics and policy more. Yeah. But precisely for that reason, I grow anxious at times when the definition of disability becomes so elastic. Yeah. I want to take up your observation about the the need to think critically about how we conduct testing and allocate support resources. Why don't you just elaborate on how we ought to think about those questions?
2: So I think this is a live topic in the autism community and also amongst clinicians And researchers, you know, the question of should a diagnosis of autism be restricted to people who not only show all their signs of autism but are also struggling in some way and need services or support, or you know, should the diagnosis of autism um, almost become an identity where someone can say, I feel autistic or I identify as autistic, I may not need any support, but I think all the characteristics of autism kind of match the way I think and the way I see the world. You know, so we've got this kind of almost tension between a classic medical model and one that is more about sort of identity. And I don't think there's a clear answer to this yet. I think, as you point out, resources are are limited. So for me, when I work in the clinic, I'm always asking the question, not only do you have a lot of autistic traits, but how are they impacting your everyday life? And if someone is saying, well, it, you know, it makes it makes it very difficult for me to get a job, or, or to live independently, or it's causing depression because of isolation and loneliness. For me, that that's the kind of threshold where i would say okay this person needs a diagnosis but i don't think it's kind of clear cut i think we're in a kind of transition because there is there are many positive consequences of autism becoming part of identity including sort of removing stigma you know that if if many people can in in every school in every high school can say i am autistic it means that it's no longer just the, the one person in the school who feels exposed, if you like, or I don't know, feels they have to hide their, who they are. So I think there's kind of, you know, there's lots of lots of issues around it and it needs good discussion.
1: Why don't you tell listeners about the Israeli Army's Unit 9900? How does it leverage the systemizing abilities of autistic people to analyze combat situations?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of relevant today because, you know, we're doing this interview on the 10th of October, 2023, when Israel is, you know, is at war. But as you may know, Israel is a country where every citizen is also a soldier. They have have compulsory conscription because they've been living under threat for all of their existence. And they're quite keen that autistic people in that country should also have the opportunity to play their part in, in the army or in the in the in the military. And so they've created this unit just for autistic people to use their talents, that pattern recognition. And one of the examples of how these autistic soldiers make their contribution is by looking at aerial photographs to see if they can spot anything that other people might miss that's out of place. And that could be a sign of, for example, terrorist activity. So this would be an example where in this particular workplace, it happens to be the army. Autistic people are demonstrating that they can make a contribution that's valuable. You know, it can save lives, for example. But I think we could sort of move the discussion beyond the quite controversial example of of Israel and the military, to kind of any workplace. You know, certainly I come across companies that are increasingly wanting to hire autistic people, because they might be very talented at computer programming, or they might be very focused in their attention, so that they make fewer mistakes, or that they might contribute to the team by coming up with A new way of looking at a problem. So that instead of just following the crowd, a company is able to suddenly look at a product, or look at the way they do things, and uh, decide to change that, perhaps for the better. So and I've come across companies, there's one called Auticon, which is now operating in half a dozen different countries, um, which only hire autistic people. So Auticon, the name is autistic consultants, and they hire them out to other other companies who might need people who are good at coding. I think, you know, the broad message here is that we need to make space for autistic people in the workplace, that the majority of autistic adults are unemployed, which is a terrible waste of opportunity and itself impacts on mental health. You know, unemployment isn't good for any of us. But also, I think from a perspective of wider society, if we include autistic people, you know, it's not only good for us as a, to become more inclusive in our values, but also it may lead to greater innovation.
1: Let me ask you a penultimate question. Uh, what are some of the policies or programs that can help better integrate autistic people into the economy? and other parts of society?
2: So I think things have to start at the earliest stage. You know, I think it has to start at school. Ideally, you know, kids would be getting, if they need an autism diagnosis, they'd be getting it early because some of the evidence shows that the earlier you get your diagnosis, the better your mental health later. Probably because you have more time to kind of get used to the idea that you are different. And you can start just accepting that difference. Um, But, you know, diagnosis should be accompanied by support. So teachers at school should be asking an autistic child, what do you need? And often the, the kinds of accommodations might be quite minor. You know, the child or the teenager might say that they want to sit in the same place every day. Or that they might say they want to wear noise cancelling headphones because they find background noise is distracting. Or they might want a buddy who can be with them in the playground because they find the play- the world of the playground is kind of too chaotic and overwhelming and confusing. But these are these are kind of adjustments or accommodations that schools should be able to provide at low cost. And I think the same is true in the world of work. You know, if an employee tells their boss that they are autistic, the first question should be, well, no problem. Uh, What do you need? How can we help? You know, and it may be that it's just small things like removing that pressure to socialize after work. Uh, If if an autistic person doesn't want to join their colleagues to go for a drink after work, or sit with other people at lunch. Um, Or it may be, you know, certain kinds of lighting in the office that may be kind of aversive for an autistic person. There's all kinds of small things that, that, you know, employers can do to make autistic people feel valued, included, and more comfortable.
1: One wonders if the rise of remote work or virtual work or hybrid work, whatever one calls it, is a means to better leverage the human capital of autistic people and other uh, neurodivergent people in our society. I wanna put a final question to you, Simon. We've spoken about autism in rather utilitarian terms. When you were working on the book, did you have any apprehensions about a utilitarian focus and away from a more normative case that we ought to view autistic people with dignity and respect precisely because they are human beings?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I wouldn't want any of your listeners to take away the message that either the book or anything we've talked about today is um, driven by utilitarian kind of concerns. You know, we are all people, fundamentally, and the overriding principle should be about well-being. You know, it's not about how much can we contribute to the economy and measuring our value in economic terms, you know, once we go down that path, you know, we it, it kind of, it, it it takes us back to the arguments, for example, that the Nazis used as to why should we be supporting people with disabilities, and the way they introduced compulsory sterilization and eugenics programs, because disabled people with disabilities were not contributing to the economy. So I think we want to go right away from that line of thinking You know, luckily the 1930s and what went on in Nazi Germany is firmly in the past, but nevertheless, we need to kind of always be conscious that the way we look at individuals should be exactly as you say, about respect and acceptance of difference and a kind of welcoming celebration of diversity. Um, And, you know, the benefits of employment, are partly economic for the, for the country and for the individual but it's also partly about well-being you know that for many people being at work makes them feel they belong and it you know and it kind of guards against the risks of social isolation so but it's ultimately you know we need to take a very individual approach not least because work is not for everybody
1: that's a wonderful way to end the conversation The book is The Pattern Seekers, How Autism Drives Human Invention*. Simon Baron-Cohen, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues.
2: Thanks, Sean. I've enjoyed it.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.